0: Each movement in the world has a signature, something that it's known for. And the movement that we belong to was started by God. And it was given to humanity, first through a race of people, through the worship at a temple, through the prophecies of a group of men. But finally, it appeared what the plan was. And the plan was that God would send His Son. God in human flesh would come and be with us. Well, He came and He gave His life on a cross and He died for humanity, but yet He rose and He rose to be seated right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Well, that's been about 2,000 years and there's been a lot going on in between that time. And so much of which is, some is good, but yet fraught with controversy and problems. The Christian church has many highlights, but it has many low points as well. Well, at this period in church history, we are just approaching the first century, the end of the first century. And as we do so, we have the aged John, the apostle, who was known as the man whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was his own designation. He liked it. He said, if I'm going to be known for anything, I'm going to be known as the person that Jesus loves. And he loves a lot of other people too. But that's the most important thing that I recognize in my relationship with him. Well, it was written in Ephesus. And the the time of this writing here is just... There's only a few years later that we find the revelation of John from the Isle of Patmos. And over in Revelation chapter 2, he writes to the church at Ephesus that they've done so many great things. They've fought off false doctrine. They've stood for the faith. They have stayed strong and not become weary in well-doing. But he says, I have this thing against you, this one thing, that you have lost your first love. And so just a few years prior to that statement from the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the age John saying, love, 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 love. In fact, as we've gone through this whole book, we're at chapter four. We're thinking, come on, I get it by now. But, you know, we don't. As I mentioned earlier, church history is full of a lot of controversy. And a lot of that has been the blood that we have spilled in the name of our God, in a conquering spirit with the, with the sword shaped like a cross, conquering in the name of Jesus, onward Christian soldiers. In fact, in some countries, we have to be hidden. Our name is hidden because it carries such a stigma attached to it. But if we're ever going to be known for anything, John is making it very clear by the power of the Holy Spirit that we will be known for love If there's anything that we hold up as a high standard that should be higher than everybody else, it should be love. And God is the one who shows us how to love. Look with me at verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank You for Your Word. It is rich, it is powerful, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and we've come in Your presence. Lord, we can do nothing without You, and yet we try in so many ways. Forgive us, Lord. Lord, tonight we're before You as the body, just a huddled group of people in the world who want to center our minds and our hearts upon your words and and what you have to say to us. Lord, we desperately need your input, especially in the middle of the week, just to get over the hump and to continue to worship you with our lives. Lord, bless us with your Holy Spirit. Bless us with wisdom and knowledge from above that is holy and pure we are lay, we lay ourselves at your feet for your work in Jesus name amen well he says beloved let us love one another for love is of god the phrase that here or the word that he uses here in in greek is in the vocative and this is what it means he says agapetoi or beloved ones Those of you, he says, I want your attention right now. It's funny, as he's writing through this letter, he says, alright, beloved, or hey, I want to get your attention. He keeps drawing us back to the central theme, and this is what he said. He said, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now, this little phrase here, let us love, is... In the subjunctive, in fact, I know that really blesses you, it's a subjunctive mood, but this is why it's important. In English, it translates better, let us love. But we could translate it like this, we should be continually loving each other. In essence, he's saying it should be obvious to every one of us that we should be, as a people, in the business of loving each other. It should be our mark. And he says, he answers the question, well, why should we be loving each other? Well, he says, for love is of God. Love is of God does not mean that there is a special, unique God kind of love. What he is saying is that God is the originator of love. All that we know about love in this world, all the good, perfect expressions that we have in this life for love come from God Himself. I know sometimes we feel like we woke up some morning and we just invented it. You look over at your wife or your husband or your kids and you say, oh, I love you. Guess what? That did not originate with humanity. It originated with a God who, for some unique, strange reason, decided to make a group of people who were very dependent on him. Now, he could have made us automatons. You like that word? It's like a 50s word or something. I don't know where it came from. I just said it. Automatons. Robots. You know, the kind of thing. He could have made a group of people that would have immediately responded to everything that he said with, I love you, you are great and holy. But yet we were made with a choice. We were made with the ability to say, I reject you, I ignore you, I don't love you, I don't want to hear anything you have to say, I'm running away from you. He made us with that ability. And in that unique aspect of the creation of mankind, there is the possibility for real, genuine, responsive love to a holy God. But everything that we know about it first came from Him, period. You know, humanity loves to, oh, how shall I say, debate the issue of God's love. If God is so loving, why would He allow this to happen to me? If God is so true and God loves people, why am I going through the things that I'm going through? If it was real, why am I suffering the way that I am? Look at all the wars in the world. Look at all the people who are starving. Is there real love in this God? And the answer from Scripture, resoundingly, unanimous among the saints, is absolutely love comes from God. Now there's two marks that he gives us here of true love in true believers. He says that love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves God, who loves, is born of God and knows God. Everyone who loves and by the way, he is giving us a unique standard of love. It doesn't mean the person that you have a crush on and you pass notes back and forth to your friends through class and say, you know, he's really cute. They never wrote notes like that about me. But but that's a deep, dark vault we'll keep closed for another therapy session. Anyway... He says, first of all, that they're born of God. That is, that if you're born of His Spirit, and we've talked about this throughout our study, that the reality that you're born of the Spirit of God is evidence in the fact that you are a loving person. And you have a God kind of love. It's very self-sacrificing. It's self-defacing. You're reaching out to other people. It's not self-centered. Not only are you born of God, but you know God. The knowledge that is spoken of here is a very strong experiential knowledge that knows that it knows. You know, there are a lot of people who can say that they know my kids. But you know what? I know my kids, I think, better than most anyone next to my wife. Someone can say, well, hey, I know this famous person, but it's actually this the people in that person's family that actually knows that person. Family knows that it knows. And being born into the family of God and loving and being able to love, you know that it is a prescribed formula and the way that we live and the way that we do things. You know, we have four kids in our house and the silence and the peace of the days where they were at school was over yesterday. (laughs) They're back in the corral. Now, it's not a very big house and it has a tendency with a lot of kids running around to get messy pretty quick. And so we make these little rules. Sometimes we abide by them. Sometimes they're tragically um, mistaken and left uh, tragically left behind. Well, one of the rules that we say is, okay, work first, play later. Work first, and then play later. And so, you know, that's kind of my little mantra as I go through the house and the kids say, I know, Dad, work first, play later, work first, play later, you go take a nap, we work now. (laughs) They're a part of the household. They know what the standards are and the requirements are and they exhibit those things. Look at verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The first part of this book, in chapter 1, verse 5, we find out that God is light. And it says, He is light and in Him is no darkness. And what that means is that God is morally pure. God, as He comes on the scene and comes into every situation in life, He shines the light of purity, of truth, and He brings everything to a complete level. And as we've mentioned before, um, places that are kind of messy can look pretty good in the dark. But as God comes into the scene, He shines a light into every crack and crevice and He shows the beauty and the majesty and the perfection of who He is. Well, not only is he light we find out in this book, but over in chapter two, I believe it's verse twenty nine, we see that he is righteous. Speaking specifically about Jesus, that means that He's pure. Everything that He does, all that He presents, every judgment He makes, everything that comes forth out of His mouth is perfect and pure without any blemish at all. At any given time, at all times, He is always righteous, good, thorough, perfect in being. But then we have the big statement And this is the statement of the movement. This is the one that stands above everything else. And it is this. God is love. You could translate it this way if you'd like. God as to his absolute essence and being. His state of being as that of love. Now, I want to say this right off the bat. That does not mean that love is God. It doesn't work that way. Love is an attribute of God. You know, God may not always judge. God may not always show mercy, but God will always love in His judging and in His mercy. It is the absolute continual part of who He is. So, what does it say here? He says, No love, no God. You know, if a person says, hey, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I follow after God. And yet there's no true evidence that there is any love present. I mean, a form of compassion and and long-suffering and forgiveness that belongs to the name of God. He says this very simply, he who does not love does not know God For God is love. Here's how you know you're in trouble. If you find yourself using the term, I just hate. And I just hate and I hate, hate and I hate and I hate those people. And every time they look at me, I just hate them. And I hate how they look at me and hate how they close their eyes and hate how they hate and I just hate them. I haven't heard any of you talk like that, by the way. But if, if that's in your vocabulary and you use it so freely against other humans, you might want to look at this verse a little more closely. He says here, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now here's the prime example. Look with me at verse 9. In this the love of God was manifested. It is the Greek word, rothe. It is manifest or brought forth or revealed to us in a very special way. His love was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through here. The word there for only begotten is monogonese, And it it has sort of a double meaning. It's a beautiful word. And it means this. It means, first of all, that he is unique. He was a very unique portion of creation. God coming into human flesh, condescending to be born as a human. Very unique, very transparent. But he's not only unique in that no one else in history has ever been like him. We have some resemblance as believers, resemblance, excuse me, but... No one was specifically like him. Very unique. But not only unique. It carries the idea of being beloved. He is the only begotten, unique, beloved Son of God. And God sent him into the world that we might live through him. Well, here's an obvious note. When you think of us living, what is he talking about here? Because... He sent him into the world to save people, I guess, who are alive and breathing. Well, therefore, we must deduce that he's not just speaking about people who are living and breathing, but he's saying that though you may have physical life, you were spiritually dead. That's a terrible thought, isn't it? Being dead, dead to the things of God, no life in you. But that is the real case for humanity. That is the way the world stays right now. Those who are outside of Jesus Christ are spiritually dead. And you may wonder, you know, why do we go out and preach the gospel all the time, Dave? I mean, can't you just give it a break? Why do we put it on the radio and books and have crusades and make little packets of information that you can go and hand out to people? And when kids come around for trick-or-treat, instead of giving them candy, you give them a little track. I mean, come on, you guys are fanatics. Well, there's a reason why. The Spirit of God has filled and brought to life a group of people that we call believers. In fact, if those of you are here who have been born again, you're a part of that group. And so am I. But now that we're born again, we realize the state of humanity. We realize where humanity is and where people are. And it is very important for us to now take the truth of this great God and go into a world that is lost and dead spiritually to the things of God. It's the portion, the reason that we spread the gospel. Now look at verse 10. He says, "In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, we find this word, propitiation, over in, I believe, the first couple of verses of chapter 2 of this book. But it is the Greek word, hilosmos. And this is what it means. It is the appropriate sacrifice that is necessary. In fact, keep your finger right here, and I'd like you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Here in Genesis 22, we find the story of Abraham and Isaac. The family of Abraham was a family in crisis. Abraham was called away from a very pagan lifestyle. And he was called to be a worshiper of God. And God said, you are going to be a father of many nations, of many. Millions of people will be born because of you. There was only one problem. Abraham and Sarah didn't have any kids. And they kept getting older and no kids. And kept getting older and no kids. Until finally they said, well, maybe we could have a child by one of our servant girls and we could bear up a lineage unto you, Abraham, thereby fulfilling the word of God. Well, it wasn't the great idea. And God told him, I'm not going to fulfill my promises through this. I will fulfill it through you and your wife. And so they had a son by the name of Isaac. And Scripture tells us that when Isaac was born, Abraham was a hundred years old. Now... They named him Isaac. And Isaac means laughter. (laughs) Imagine giving your kid the name laughter. What's your name? Laughter. Mom, all the kids at school are making fun of me. They're always laughing at me. I know, son. It's You have to bear the name. But the reason that we gave it to you is because when we heard that your mom was pregnant, we had to laugh. Are you kidding me? I'm a 100 years old. Is this how God is going to fulfill His promise? Yes, it is. God fulfilled His promise in that way so that everyone would know, even in history, thousands of years to this date, we would be able to look back and say, wow, that's a miracle. That is something that God has done in Himself. Well, this child began to grow and He seemed to be the fulfillment of that promise that from your seed you will have... uh, A great nation. But in chapter 22, something changed. Look with me at verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Then he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him... There is a burnt offering on the mountains, which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey The lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. I wonder what was going through the heart of Abraham. I don't know that you could hear more crushing words from God. Take your son and sacrifice him. I mean, this wasn't done. We're not this kind of people. He's the son of promise. Am I going crazy? Am I hearing things? But he had come to know that God fulfilling a promise late in life that God's hand was upon him, so he had to believe him. Well, let's go on. So Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son and took, he took the fire in his hand and the knife and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, son. Then he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place which God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Just a little note here. His son was not a little boy. He was not somebody who could be overpowered. He was probably at least 15 years of age, probably on up closer to 20 years of age. So much love and respect that he had with his father that he would allow him, in the presence of building an altar, to bind him and readily place him on the altar. And I can only imagine the look between the two of their eyes. What is going on? And the loving look must have been, trust me, son, brokenhearted. His only unique, perfect son of promise. And here they are at this juncture about to sacrifice him. Verse 10. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked. And there, behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burn offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh-Jireh or Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide as it is to this day in the mount of the Lord. It shall be provided. Interesting note here. It says that this was done in Moriah. It is Actually, a a series of hills, or we might call mountains, there in the area of Jerusalem. In fact, it was the place that Solomon first built the temple unto the Lord. This is the image that we see in the Gospel of John. It's so easy for us as believers to just pass right over it and say, Well, Jesus died for my sins. He died on the cross for my sins. He's forgiven me and now I'm going to heaven. It's not the case. God took a man thousands of years before and said, I want you to take your only son and I want you to do something unthinkable. And God provided for him. But it was an image that would be born throughout history in this group of people until the day that God did it himself. God did that himself for us, which is a good reminder for us that real, true, godly love bears the marks of extreme self sacrifice. You know, in our society, you can turn back to 1st John. In our society, it is so easy for us to be self-centered. Wouldn't you say so? How is this going to affect me? If I do this, what will people think of me? Or if I do these series of things, will people love me more or appreciate me more? And, or maybe you've heard the words, you know, there's no time to whine. I just made that up. I don't even know where that came up. the the thing I wanted to say is stop whining. You know, when you get in that point in life where you say, oh, woe is me. I have it so tough. Nobody is being nice to me. And true, the world is tough. But the call, the clarion call of the Christian faith is love and self-sacrifice on behalf of others. One thing I've noticed is that if you are sacrificing and loving and caring for people around you, you have, there it is, little time to whine. And you have more time to be thankful and to be grateful for what God is doing. I'd heard a story of a priest. His name was Father Damien. And I believe it was in 1873 that he took the position to go to the island of Molokai in Hawaii and witness and share the gospel with the leper colony there. Well, he did so with great zeal and love. And he he felt that he was fulfilling the ministry of Jesus. So as he arrived on the island, he began to go around and meet with a lot of the lepers and try to gain entrance into their home and speak with them and share the gospel with them. But it was to no avail. Everyone shut him out. Very few people had anything to do with him at all. Well, undaunted by this, he went ahead and built a chapel. He built a place of worship and conducted worship services on that island for 12 years with zero response. It came to the point where he said, Look, I've got to go. I have not been called here. It is evident that I have nothing to give. And so he packed up and began to leave. And as he stood on the dock waiting for his boat, he looked down at his hands because he noticed they'd begin to become numb. And he noticed the white spots begin to form on his hands and the numbness that was present that signified that he too now was a leper. Interesting, his response. His response was this, I'm excited. I know what I have to do. I have to go back and tell the people. And as, as he began to unpack his stuff and head back to his, his house and to his village, Word spread like wildfire around the community. And within a few hours, there were over a hundred people standing in front of his hut. They loved him. They showed compassion to him. And on the first Sunday after this event, he had hundreds of people who had come to the Lord and worship. Why? Because he was no longer this austere, perfect person who wasn't touched by their infirmities, but he was now one of them and the trust is there. you ever think about why God sent his only son into the world? He said, it seems kind of messy. Couldn't you do it another way? Here's the reason why. He loved humanity. And he showed his love by giving what we would prize the most. I have a couple of little boys, a couple of girls, or actually they have me, and I love them with my whole heart. And I'll tell you, this is the the story of dads. Within the heart of every man is a powerful, vicious warrior who is able to protect everyone who has ever existed in his family. And I dream about it. You know, I was on a plane a month ago, and I was thinking, "I wonder what would happen. You know, just somebody come against my family right when i 'm in the house and i 'm right next to my baseball bat or something, and I just sort of think of, of slow motion, how that you would just sort of fly into action, you know crashing teeth, bussing nose, apprehending, calling on the phone, stepping on their necks, photographers flashing my wife standing in the corner, dies, just flittering oh. What a man. I'm so glad I married you. It's actually a pretty good dream if you think about it. But my heart is to protect my children. And I couldn't imagine anybody coming to them and doing anything. In fact, you, you look around the world and you see all of the violent crimes that are being portrayed against young children and your heart just sinks. And it hurts. Who could do anything like this? And there's the message from God. You want to know how I really love you? Think about putting one of your own kids to death. And then question my love. I want you to know forever, forever. That I love you. And I'm willing to do so by placing what I have as the most precious Person and relationship that I have ever had, known, or experienced. That is God's love for humanity. He became one of us. Look with me at verse 11 of 1 John 4. We have some very sound reasoning. He uses the term again, agape toy or beloved. Listen, take note. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. That's pretty good reasoning, don't you think? If God is love and we're a part of Him and we're supposed to know Him, if this is the way that He acts, then I guess we should love one another. And when we sit in church and we think, Oh, this is easy. I love everybody in here. In fact, I might even give a few of them a holy kiss on the side of the cheek. But real love is seen in real life. Real love is seen in how you walk and what you say and the glances and the looks that you give and the tone of voice that you have. Real love is seen in those areas, not in pious platitudes with stained glass windows and being very holy in front of a bunch of people. It's real life at home with mom and dad and the kids, your boss at work, your family members, the people who live on your block who turn their music up too loud early in the morning. Not that I'm going to mention any names here, but you know who you are. <laughs> Verse 12, the reasoning goes on. He says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. The word there for perfected is tele which means this. It is matured and complete and it's come to a stage that it is perfected. It doesn't need anything else added to it. And here's the reason. If we're loving people, then that real love of God is being fulfilled in us. And real change is taking place. The kind of change that not only you feel in here, but you see and everybody sees it. It's visible. Look at verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Keep your finger here and look with me back to the left in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, look with me at verse 13. Speaking of Jesus, it says, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a guarantee of your inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. In essence, you belong to God. God. Back to 1 John. He has given us His Spirit and thereby we know that we abide or dwell in Him. If you have been born of the Spirit of God, if you have been born into the family of God, God has given you His Spirit. You have a seal or a stamp on you that says to all the world that this person belongs to God. You know, I can't think of another person I would belong to that I would be more proud to belong to, and that is to God. there's, There's like a seal that's been set on you that says, this person is mine. He or she belongs to me, and they're a part of my inheritance that I will one day gather to myself. But we have the Spirit of God in us who enables us to love the way that we need to. Any of you ever get mad at your friends? Do you ever think, I'll just... There's just a few of us. you ever think bad thoughts about people? I do. Sometimes when I feel that I've been slighted or I think, man, that's not fair. Why did you do that to me? My immediate response is, oh, how I would like to get even with you. And I become so creative. In fact, if I wrote a book on how to get even, I'd probably make a million dollars. I'm kind of a genius at it, really. In fact, your pastoral staff knows the truth of that. I mean, if you cross just a line just a little bit and do something to my office, there will be consequences for you. Not that I'm saying that I glued everything down on Dale Coffing's desk (coughs) with a hot glue gun. It took a couple of hours. Actually, there's someone worse. It's Nelson Walker. He's somebody you don't ever want to mess with. Because he... He was in special forces in the military and he has ways. (laughs) Saying that to protect you. Now, the reason I say that is I know that we struggle within us to love to the level of perfection that God's called us to. But you and I don't have to do it alone. We have the Holy Spirit who is with us. And you can call out upon God any moment of the day and say, Lord, I am having a hard time. Search my thoughts. Search my mind. Know my heart, O oh Lord. Look down inside of me. See the ugliness. I, I'm not doing the way that I should. I know that I'm not honoring you. Oh, but you have the Holy Spirit with you who helps you to cry out to recognize your deficiency." You never have to go through this alone, my friends. You never have to. You never have to live up to some weird standard of perfection that is not of God. God will not call you to a place that He will not provide for you. And God will provide for you and me each day to do that which is necessary in order to love and to honor Him like godly people. That's the the real thing He provides. Well, I had hoped to go further tonight, but we'll wrap it up with verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world. We have a testimony with us that we have for the whole world that God sent His Son to save the world, to pull us out of death, to be a sacrifice for our own sins. And this is the confession that we make collectively as a group of people. And in the kernel of that confession is God's love. I don't know where your heart is tonight. I don't know if you're harboring bitterness. Maybe you wouldn't call it hate. But you might say, man, I do not have love for people like I should. And you might be saying, you know what? I've never really experienced that. Well, let me, let me just throw something out to you. If, if you're able to listen to these words and to read this book, tonight is the night for you to change. If you have just been living with bitterness and, and you so easily gossip. And say things about other believers and you find the words that just roll off of your mouth. That if anyone were to repeat them or place them on the radio, you'd think, oh, I'm so ashamed. If that's you, good news. God is in the business of helping people repent and turn around and love. You know, we have nothing to say to a lost and hurting world if we do not say it in love. If we say, look how pious and wonderful we are, look how holy we are, we don't do the things that you do. They don't care. They look at us and say, you're unhappy, you're hypocritical, you have a sour face. I don't want to join you. But a people who abide in love are free. And the world looks at it and says, oh, I want that. What is it? I don't know, but it looks great. I think it's love. Is that what it is? Because I've been looking for love everywhere else and I I haven't been able to find it. You mean that love can be seen on people and be read on humanity? Absolutely. But you have to make a commitment to let that garbage go. Let's bow our heads together. You know... I just want to pray for a few of you. If you say, man, Dave, I need help. My heart's full of garbage. Even though I'm a believer, even though I believe that Jesus is the only way, man, I am not loving like I should. Then just raise up your hand. I want to pray for you. No one else is looking. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. You know what God's going to do with that admission that you need help? He's going to transform your heart and help you to love the people that you can't love. He's going to help you say beautiful words to a world that needs to see real love. Father, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who raise their hands tonight. So many. Free them, Lord, by the power of your Spirit. Enable them to wash wash them clean, Lord, enable them to live beyond the hurt, the pain, the bitterness and begin to love in a self-sacrificing way and for all of us, God. We pray that the standard that You have given us tonight would be etched on our hearts and our minds to live for You and bear Your name, a name of love, in Jesus. Name.